Hey, y'all. <clears throat> uh, you know, Fourth of July is a pretty fulfilling time. You know, we have good food and we're fulfilled after we eat. Uh, we get together with family, some of us, and we're fulfilled because we're together with family. It's fun and fulfilling to, you know, to uh, celebrate, receive gifts. It's fulfilling to go out, like, on a special date, uh, like to Salina, to Cozy Inn Burger, with your wife on her birthday because nothing else is open at that hour. That was pretty fulfilling. We, at least we're together, right? Well, Jesus came to fulfill the law. In Matthew five seventeen, and the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, before we talk about what fulfill means, what law is he talking about? Well, obviously, he's talking about the law, the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments that Moses received on Mount Sinai was more than just the Ten Commandments. We read about it in Leviticus especially. There are 613 laws with 248 commandments, thou shalt, and 365 prohibitions, thou shalt not, essentially. So the law is pretty extensive that Moses received for Israel. Why so many laws, though? Why not just the Ten Commandments? Well, three reasons. I would encourage you to take notes on the, today, only because if you don't, you'll forget everything that was spoken, because there's a lot of lists here today. And, and it took me, I, I think I wrote like five different versions of this sermon this past week, uh, praying, God, he always gave me new insights and whatnot, and Anyway, um, so it's going to be really bad or really inspirational, one or the other today. I don't know. Why so many laws? Three. First, God gave Israel laws, first of all, to establish their identity as Israelites, as a chosen people. You see, they had spent hundreds of years in Egypt as slaves, thinking like slaves, um, uh, acting like slaves, you know, being like slaves, and now they've been released, but their thought process didn't automatically change. They needed to know a new identity. They needed to know who they were. God was leading them to a new land. They were a people of God now, representing him to the entire world of what it looks like to be in relationship with God. You need a new identity. So because of that, I'm going to give you these laws to live by. Secondly, it gave them laws to create moral boundaries for their own protection as a new nation. As slaves, they didn't, uh, they kind of didn't know how to decide, you know, they were told what to do and what not, but now they have the freedom to decide, well, they needed moral boundaries, just like little kids or new believers need, or like my sister's strange dog who would come to Christmas with them every Christmas in New York to my, our parents' house, and when the, the crew of family members would go out to eat together on a Christmas vacation, they would have to place boundaries around this dog uh, and place him in the kitchen and shut the door so that he couldn't get out. Otherwise, this dog would attack anything that was under the tree, any, any food items. For example, my brother-in-law's sponge candy that he would get every year, huge bag of molasses sponge candy. The dog would just consume it, annihilate it. We come home, and this dog is like really in bad shape, and the house really is in bad shape too, if you know what I mean, afterwards. So this dog needed boundaries. In the same way, Israel needed boundaries for their own protection. 
God's law was given to them. We too live by laws, Ten Commandments, and we need those for boundaries as well. Uh, thirdly, to reveal our need for a Savior. Just like if you were to see a sign walking down the road that says, do not look through this hole in the fence. Well, nine out of ten people stop and look in the hole, right? Because that's what the law does. It reveals our sinful nature and our need for a Savior. Or if there's a wet paint sign, uh, wet paint, do not touch. I always, being a painter, go, that's eh, not wet anymore. I touch it. A lot of people would because that's what the law does. Um, or you order a kid to sit down because of their obstinance, and the kid may sit down, but in their heart they're standing up. They need a law to reveal their sinful nature. We do, and our need for a Savior. No, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Rather, he came to affirm the law and lift up the law. In verse 18, he said, For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Well, what was the smallest letter? The iota, like the letter I. What was the least stroke? It was like a little apostrophe. Even that won't disappear from God's law, his written law given to Moses until all is accomplished. Jesus expected his people to live by the law and obey his commands. In verse 19, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. No practicing comes before teaching. We like to teach. We like to learn. But we don't often practice what we know. But practicing is, comes before teaching. More is caught than taught when we're dealing with people. So do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Why would people think that Jesus came to abolish the law? Jesus is assuming the thoughts of the people. He's presuming on the thoughts. Do not think. Well, they were thinking, so he named it. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Why would people think that? Well, because of the way Jesus reacted and responded to the Pharisees. He would challenge them. He would correct them, these scribes and Pharisees, professional teachers of the law who had added by this time many rules and interpretations to God's 613 commands so as to make them more attainable for them to obey so that they could have a perfect life on this earth. For example, the Pharisees took the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then they interpreted it this way. They, they said, it means you can't spit on the dirt on the Sabbath because it will make clay, and in so do you'll break the law. But you can spit on a rock, and maybe that's why Jesus spit on the ground on the Sabbath when he healed the blind man, and he, he intentionally made clay, breaking the interpretation of the Pharisees' law, and he, he rubbed it in the guy's eyes. Well, that would have infuriated the, the Pharisees and the scribes. He made clay. He broke the Sabbath. Well, that was ludicrous because it was only their interpretation and not the intention of the law. Or how about this example? Barclay, not Charles Barclay, but William Barclay, commentator, pastor, said, the teachers of the law said, he who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right or with his left hand 
He is guilty because you've written more than one, one letter. Whether he has written them with ink or with paint, red chalk, vitriol, or anything which makes a permanent mark, you'd be guilty. Also, he that writes on two walls that form an angle or on two tablets of his own account book so that they can be read together, well, then you're guilty. This is all under do not to keep the Sabbath, right? But if anyone writes with dark fluid, with fruit juice, or with dust of the road, or in sand, or anything which does not make a permanent mark, he is not guilty. If he writes one letter on the ground and one on the wall of the house, or on two pages of a book so that they cannot be read together, he is not guilty. Oh, okay, that's good. I'm not guilty then. Pharisees came up with these interpretations and explanations so that they could live 100% perfect according to God's law in their own minds. We do the same thing. I'm righteous. I live by God's commands. I go to church. I I tithe. I give my offerings on occasion. I I don't get drunk with wine or or get blasted at the beer blast. I don't, you know, and so therefore I'm righteous and acceptable before God. Well, over the years, um, the Jewish leaders missed the whole intent of the law, and they would accumulate these new rules piled upon God's law, thousands and thousands of regulations and rules surrounding God's law. By the year 200 AD, the Mishnah was in effect. The Mishnah interpreted God's law. It would equate to 800 pages of English interpreting the law, and they're living by the Mishnah, these Jewish uh, people at the time from Judaism. And, or in a few hundred years later, the Talmud in 500 AD, there were these, this many commentaries on the Mishnah. And they were to live according to that right there, like the Encyclopedia Britannica. And that is how you can keep the law and be acceptable before God. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but he came to put an end to that nonsense. Paul writes it this way in Colossians. Such regulations, well, they have an appearance of wisdom, but lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They don't address the heart matters. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does it mean to fulfill? This starts another list. It means four things to fulfill. Uh, fulfill, literally. Filled to the full or complete, like water in a container or like this pencil drawing. On the left, it's not fulfilled. On the right, the drawing is fulfilled. It's completed. Jesus said, I've come to complete the law, to fulfill it, not to abolish it. How exactly did Jesus fulfill the law? In four ways. Jesus obeyed God's law without flaw. First of all, he fulfilled it by perfectly obeying it throughout his life. Jesus never once broke one single command in his life. He was sinless in his thought, in his word, in his deed, in his motives, Throughout his life, he was a perfect 10 out of 10. The devil tried to convince Jesus to sin just once. He tempted him because if he had, he would have been disqualified as the savior of the world. He would have had to die for his own sins. But Jesus' life demonstrated what God's intention for a human would look like had they not fallen in the beginning, you know, in the Garden of Eden. This is what humans should have looked like. And can and will look like for all eternity face to face when we're glorified and perfected in, in heaven for all eternity. 
So Jesus fulfilled by obeying. He also fulfilled all the Old Testament messianic prophecies of the Savior. There were 348 of them by some counts. One of them, or two of them would be, there'd be a star in Bethlehem. The Savior would be born in Bethlehem. So there you go. And he fulfilled all 348 of them. Had Jesus not fulfilled these prophecies, then it would have discounted him as the Messiah and disqualified him. Had he not perfectly obeyed the law, he would have been disqualified. Thirdly, Jesus fulfilled the law by reestablishing the true intention, which uh, God's intention behind the law. And he goes on to make these comments later on in Matthew 5 when Jesus said, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And so the Pharisees would have been thinking, I haven't murdered anyone. I'm perfect in this area. But then Jesus goes on, verse 22, here's the intention. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, rock, rock, or you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus reveals the heart and tension behind the law. And then fourthly, Jesus fulfilled the law by offering himself as the final perfect sacrifice. You see, the Old Testament law for Israel consisted of three parts. It had the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. The moral law was like the Ten Commandments. Um, and we should still strive to live according to the Ten Commandments today because they were repeated in the New Testament. And so they're still valid. It's still wrong to murder and commit adultery. But the ceremonial law were surrounded by the temple worship and the sacrifice of animals. And they're no longer in existence because Jesus came to fulfill that. And then there were the, the ceremonial law would have been like um, all those temple rituals. Jesus said, I've come to offer myself as a final perfect sacrifice. Writer of Hebrews wrote this, Day after day, every pastor stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away the sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all, all time one sacrifice for sins, then he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, he, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus' death on the cross ended many aspects of all aspects of the ceremonial law, but even many aspects of the civil law, because through Jesus' death and resurrection and then Pentecost, the people of God extended beyond Israel. People of God are from every nation now, every tribe, every tongue, every custom, each one with their own separate laws. And so one law for Israel, national Israel, would not apply, all those civil laws wouldn't apply to America, for example. Like we don't, we don't practice circumcision today as a uh, right right to stand holy before God. Or there are many food restrictions that Israel had that we don't have to partake in anymore. A lot of the principles behind the civil laws are true in Leviticus, but uh, many have come to an end. Verse 19b, whoever practices and teaches these laws will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Next question, how do people seek to achieve a right standing before God in his kingdom? How can we do so, so that we will be called great in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, Sherm Nichols writes, uh, he, said, he gives this illustration of two jockeys who were hired by two horse owners, thoroughbred 
horse owners, and, and, uh, and they battled back and forth as to what, what was the greatest horse alive. And, and so they hired the best jockeys. They said, we're going to have a duel. We're going to put this to rest. We're going to once and for all see who, whose horse is the best. And there's this humongous purse in this, in this race where they went duel head to head. So the jockeys hopped on the horse and they were told that they could ride any way that they would want to ride. Make sure you cross the line first. And so they hopped on the horses and they took off and they were neck and neck the whole way almost and, half, and, they, and they began to push each other and bump each other and whatnot so much so that both horses at the same time, they spooked and they stopped and the, and the two riders went flying off. And so in a mad scramble to get back to their horses, one jockey got on the horse and he, he galloped and, and stormed to the finish line victorious. And so he was like raising his hands like this. He went up to the owner in, in the crowd and he looked at the owner to receive some great affirmation as a jockey. And the owner looked him in the face and it looked like the owner was about to die. He looked angry and disgruntled. And, and the writer saying, what, what's up with you, man? I just won. He said, you won all right, but you hopped on the wrong horse. All that to say... Sherm Nichols says there are two ways uh, to approach uh, rightness before God, and one way that's, or two ways that are wrong, and one way that is right. He suggests these three ways. The first wrong way is we misuse our freedom. Misuse our freedom, it's license. In verse 19, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We set it aside. We have no need for it anymore because we live under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. We don't need any of those laws and commands. That's legalism. Many people think that. Well, imagine having freedom from traffic laws today. You know, you kind of put the metal to the pedal to the floor, go 90 miles in a school zone, or, or, you know, you throw your kids in the back of the station wagon and go on a 500, 600-mile trip, and they're messing around in the back seats in the back of the... Oh, that was my childhood. Wait. Yeah, I did that. All is good, but, but someone's going to get their eye poked out eventually, right? You're going to get in trouble, especially if there's an accident. Laws are meant to protect us. It's all fun and games until someone gets hurt. So Christians set us, who set aside God's commands like this, it, it's like making his commands low priority in our lives. And then, therefore, we teach and we influence others by our example that they're really not that important. Jesus said, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you'll be called least into the kingdom of heaven. There'll be ramifications for all eternity when his commands, his law is not priority. Secondly, um, fulfilling means trusting, or how we respond, trusting in our own righteousness, which is the other side of the spectrum. Not license, but legalism. The Pharisees were professional legalists. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't even make it into the kingdom of heaven unless you surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. Even the most religious Pharisees wouldn't qualify for God's kingdom because they wouldn't surpass their own legalistic, ritualistic 
laws, and rules. You see, because God judges us not on just what we do, but why we do it and how we do it. He judges us on our motives, our heart motives, and our source, who we trust in as we are seeking to obey. And the Pharisees, unlike Jesus, fell short in their heart motives. They had self-centered, arrogant, prideful motives. And they fell short in their trust because they were trusting in themselves and not in the Spirit of God. And we all fall short. In fact, Humpty Dumpty fell, right? Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And he had also a great summer in winter and spring. Thank you very much. That's my joke for the day. Okay, Humpty Dumpty, thank you for the courtesy laughter over here. Um, but we all, we, we're all disqualified. James puts it this way, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. We can be perfect all our lives and sin once and we're disqualified from the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah 64, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags in God's sight. Those are the two wrong ways to respond to God's law. Here's the right way. Trust not in our own righteousness, but trust in God's righteousness. We have to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees And only until we do that will we be qualified to enter into the kingdom of heaven and live for the kingdom of God. How can, how possibly can our righteousness surpass the righteousness of the professional teachers of the law? How can we enter the kingdom of heaven? Do we, any of us have hope? Well, we need a different kind of righteousness. And Jesus came to fulfill this law by replacing it with a new law, the law of grace. Jesus was like essentially the new Moses. He came to fulfill the Mosaic old covenant. Christ was the new Moses in the new covenant, if you will. You see, Moses ascended onto Mount Sinai and he received the Ten Commandments and the law. Jesus ascended Mount Aramos and from there he preached the Sermon on the Mount. 3,000 died when Moses descended from the mountain and he saw them worshiping a golden calf and therefore 3,000 were put to death that day in Exodus 32. On the other hand, 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God came to reside within believers in the new covenant. The old Mosaic covenant consists of five books, the first five books of our Old Testament called the Pentateuch, Pent meaning five. The new covenant of grace gives us the gospel. Gospel of Matthew. The first gospel is laid out in five sections. The first section is that of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was the new Moses. He was giving us a new law. He was fulfilling the old law. And when the Pharisees were required to surpass their own righteousness, let's return to the driving image. There are three ways to satisfy a traffic law. First is never get a traffic citation or a ticket. How many here are ticketless all your life? Raise your hand. Stand up. We want to clap for you. No, you don't have to do that. Now, of all those who raise their hand, how many of you have never broken a traffic law? 
Hopefully no hands have gone up because if you've gone one mile over, then you are guilty of eternal hell. No, you're not. You're guilty. <laughs> or if you failed to use your turning signal or if you turned into the wrong lane or what not, you know, we're all guilty. So none of us are perfect. Second way we can satisfy the traffic laws to pay the penalty for the traffic violation. The third way is to have someone else pay for the traffic violation on our behalf. Now liken that unto God's, Jesus' satisfaction of God's law. The first way is to obey it perfectly. Jesus was the only one qualified to enter into the kingdom of heaven based on his own merits. He satisfied it. But we haven't. And so we have to pay the penalty for our sin, and the penalty being death. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation. All of us have broken at least one command of God, but multiple. We all deserve eternal hellfire and damnation, separation from God. The third way is to have someone else pay that penalty on your behalf, and that's the gospel. That's what Jesus came to fulfill. He paid our penalty by, of death when we broke God's command by offering himself as a perfect sacrifice. And he gave us his perfect righteousness. Second Corinthians tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us while he hung on the cross, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When he hung on the cross, he not only took our sins upon him, he gave us his righteousness in exchange. I love this quote. It says, Jesus lived a life we could not live and died a death we should have died to give us a life we could not earn. Or this one, God never requires anything from us that he hasn't first deposited within us. And that's what Jesus has done in the new covenant. The old covenant said, you got to do this. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. In the new covenant, God says, you won't, you can't, but I will, I will, I will. Ezekiel, speaking of this new covenant, said in Ezekiel 36, I will, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you. I will put my spirit in you, and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep your laws. And only God can empower and enable us to obey God's commands consistency, consistently with his spirit living in us and through us. And that's why we're told in Matthew 5, 19, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We can practice and teach God's commands now with consistency because we have the living spirit of God living in us, empowering us, equipping us, enabling us to live what God has asked, how God has asked us to live. We can do so. We won't do so perfectly because we, we will fall, but we'll be forgiven nonetheless. I want to end with this illustration. One day we're all going to stand before God and Judgment Day. I don't know how it's going to look, but it might look something like this. Revelation tells us that there's the accuser of the believers. We can liken him to the prosecuting attorney who comes and he's, on, he's standing to your side on that day saying, uh, Your Honor, Judge, uh, this, this man before you or this woman before you, I want to let you know about their lives. They open up the book of our lives and they say, 
I have reason to believe, no, I have record to believe that, that this guy standing before you, oh, he's lied many times in his life, throughout his life. Small lies, even some really big doozies. He, he's also been disrespectful to people in his language and his thoughts. He's slandered people. He's gossiped them multiple times. I have record of a judge. Um, he, he has disrespected his spouse and his kids, and he has ignored his responsibilities. He's been unfaithful and lazy. He's been a glutton. He's lusted and on and on and on. The accuser of the believers, who is Satan, will be accusing us before the holy judge of God. And the judge says, how do you respond? Your head's down. You have nothing to say. You know that you've failed over and over again. You're standing there in your dirty rags before a holy God. But then your defense attorney comes, stands on this side of you and said, Judge, um, I want to let you know that this man is guilty, but, but, but I paid the price for him of death. I, I died for him, Father. And so Jesus then removes his white robe and he places it over our shoulders like this. And we stand before holy God, dressed in the righteous robe of our Savior, Jesus Christ. No stain, pure, perfectly white, forgiven. And God says, hey, nice robe. That means you belong to me because you belong to my son. Come into my kingdom. You belong to me, child of God. That's what qualifies us for God's kingdom. But I got even better news. We don't have to wait for that day to be clothed with the righteousness of God. Wait, there's a verse I wanted to read to you. I think in Isaiah it says, For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, and he's arrayed me in the robe of his righteousness. We don't have to wait to be clothed with that righteousness. Because when Jesus died and rose on the dead, when he filled us with his spirit, he essentially clothed us with his robe of righteousness even now. We are covered with the righteousness of Christ. Christ is our life right now. And there's still the accuser of the believers over here every day accusing us to our face, in our minds, saying you're guilty, you're not worthy, you're worthless, you're unfaithful. God couldn't, you never measure up. And on and on and on he goes. And we believe those lies. And we live accordingly. But Jesus said, no, no, no. I, I died for all those things. They're all cast as far as the east is from the west. And in, in, replace, in replacement, I've covered you with my robe of righteousness. Not only covered you, I've filled you on the inside. And when my, my father looks at you, he sees my perfect righteousness living in you and through you. And that's what qualifies you for my kingdom forever. But even now, as we walk, we are the righteousness of Christ right now. We don't have to wait till die until we die and stand before him. And that's what we celebrate. That's perfect freedom. As we celebrate freedom, 4th of July, we are free in Christ, free from condemnation, free from the fear of death, free from the lies of the enemy, because we know the truth, and the truth sets us free. Thank you, Jesus, for um, laying this message on my heart, but for <laughs> delivering it from your son Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Lord. Thank you for the truth. I pray, God, that if there's someone who happens to be in here who has never, ever done business with you, who's never surrendered their lives to you, admitted their guilt, the guilt of their sin, who, who, who have been believing a lie that they're good enough 
to make it into heaven based on their own merits, Lord. I pray if there's anyone in here like this that today will be a day where they will truly be set free. Set free spiritually for all eternity because they've come to know Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray with them right now in these words. Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. I have fallen short on a daily basis. But Lord Jesus, I know I can't make it or stand right before you. But I know that your son can, and so I receive him. His forgiveness, his righteousness. Make me your child right now, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.